0: Okay, I am super on board with this. Can you guys hear me?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, I couldn't hear anyone for a second, but everyone's just quiet. <laughs> I was like, is that what silence from these people sounds like?
1: What is that? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by two people whom I have seen in person recently. I'm still on a high from that. It was a few days ago, but I'm still on a high. It was tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom, shalom. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick.
0: Hi again.
1: Yeah, we saw each other last Friday at Barney Greengrass on the Upper West Side, about which more in a moment. First, I do wanna tell you who's on this week's show. It was some really fun interviews. I talked with David Fishoff, who runs rock and roll fantasy camps, and he talked with us about camps and rock and roll, and it was it, it kind of blew my mind. And then also, since nothing says summer like sports and great 80s tunes, we talked with author John Wertheim. He's a return Jew. Pretty soon he gets the steak knives and the sous-vide cooker if he comes back a third time. Uh, he has a new book out. It's called Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and 90 days that change sports and culture forever. There's a lot of Michael Jordan, a lot of Michael Jackson. It was just a great interview. Before we get to those stuff and and so much more, I'm still reeling. I think we're all still reeling from the Surfside collapse. One of my best friends is from Surfside and he's actually Cuban American. And he always said that when his parents came to this country, they actually wanted to settle in greater Miami, but in a neighborhood with lots of Jews because they knew the schools would be pretty good. And this was just a funny story he always told about, like, the Jewish cultural character of Surfside. That's really neither here nor there, except that I, I immediately thought of it because it was so dear to his heart. And I thought of of just what he's told me about it, though I've never been there. And I thought of the lives that were lost, and it's, it's going to be a lot more as they sift through the rubble. So our heart goes out to anyone who has any connection.
0: Our reporter, Armin Rosen, is on the ground now in Surfside. He has a piece that's up on Tablet called Shabbat in Surfside, basically what happened right after. A lot of Venezuelan Jews in that area. Mm-hmm. This is a tragedy on every level, but it is also in many ways a Jewish tragedy. I think we're going to keep hearing more and more as as news comes in. Unfortunately, no good news is coming in anymore. Right.
2: And what I loved most about Armin's piece is The reporting on how this past Sunday we commemorated Yud Zion Batam as the 17th of the Hebrew month of Tammuz, which is a day of of many calamitous occurrences, including the breaking down of the walls of Jerusalem, including, according to tradition, the day that Moses broke or shattered the Ten Commandments. An Armin's piece really tells all these really deeply moving stories about how the community came together to mourn, to worship, to be there for each other, and to provide whatever glimmers of of comfort they can in this very difficult moment.
1: I also just want to say something about Miami. You know, everything one hears about it, right? It's been this home for Haitian Americans and Cuban Americans and so many Latin Americans who move there, and many of them are Roman Catholic, but many of them are Pentecostal Protestants, and many of them are Jews. And of course, historically, it was the golden land for Jews from the North who wanted a bit of sunshine. So it it just, everything I know about it is that it's just this welcoming melting pot of all of these different cultures. It's the other promised land. Yeah, it's the other promised land. And they go there, and you go there because it's sunshine and happiness and a place where you can go to the beach after high school. If you're a kid, you leave high school and like walk to the beach with your friends or you retire there and don't have to shovel snow anymore. And it's free and it's America. And just it just hits home. And if memory serves me correctly, and I may be completely wrong here, I did not
2: bother fact checking this because this is unorthodox and this is how we roll. But didn't Isaac Peshevis Singer, wasn't he eating lunch at like a lunch counter in Surfside, when he was informed he had won the, the Nobel Prize.
0: Wait, that is amazing. Let's just
1: say that's true.
0: I'm on board with that story.
2: If it's not true, it is now. Hey, it's producer
3: Josh Cross, and normally I wouldn't break in to fact check something, but this story is both true and really amazing. Listen to this paragraph from a December 5th, 1993 article in the New York Times, Another Side of Miami Beach. At the corner of Harding Avenue and 95th Street is Sheldon's Store, with an old-fashioned lunch counter where thick, sweet New York egg creams are sold for a dollar. It was after eating a bagel and eggs breakfast here that the late Isaac Beshevis Singer learned he had won the Nobel Prize for Literature. 95th Street is now officially named Isaac B. Singer Boulevard.
1: So um, from there to another one of our promised lands, uh, the three of us saw each other in person with producer Josh Cross for the first time that all three of us were together since COVID started. It was at Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King, as he fancies himself the deli on the Upper West Side of Manhattan.
0: Please, deli, it's an appetizing shop. Deli is meat appetizing is fish. Never the twain shall meet, except in New York Times crosswords, where lox is always the answer for like, what's served at a deli? Fends me deeply.
2: (laughs) So Mark, I I don't mean to embarrass you, but I do do have to share a story (laughs) with our Uh, listeners. I'm going to set up the scene. Uh, For those of you who did not have the good fortune of of eating at the legendary, beloved, great Barney Greengrass. It is indeed an appetizing shop. And we indeed indulged in all things appetizing. We ordered uh, really an ungodly amount of food between us, including so many pickles. I believe five orders of half sour pickles, whitefish salad, you know, bagels, anything you could you could ask for. And then a gentleman comes out after we had Enjoyed our meal. Like the dishes had been cleared. And drank the, the seventh cup of free refill coffee
1: right. we've been offered. We're on the,
2: uh, the sidewalk in their sidewalk cafe that they've set up, right? We are sitting there and a gentleman comes out, one of the employees of the restaurant and says, fresh latkes, who would like some fresh, tasty latkes? No, Mark, <laughs> when you heard that, that voice from the mountaintop,
1: that clarion call, what is it that you thought was going on? What did you think you're being offered? you know a guy comes out and speaks into a crowd of diners who are cleaning up who are ready to go it says fresh latkes you know who who wants some you think free latkes right I, I don't think i'm crazy here that you figure he has some leftover he has some leftover shredded potato not everything went during the rush they overprepared he wants to get rid of them he's given out free latkes now please understand the stop and shop uh, on the new haven woodbridge line where i with the kosher bakery you know, if they have some cookies that are about to go stale, or you know, they put out free cookies. I mean, I'm from a, I'm from a place up here in the in the woods where farmers markets and farmer stands give out free produce at the end of the day because yeah, you know, you've made your buck and you don't want it to go to waste. So that's where I'm coming from. So you raise your hand and say yes, please, <laughs> and I'm watching you,
2: thinking we had just eaten our weight in fish. We literally <laughs> just paid. Why is Mark
1: doubling down and ordering latkes? Stephanie, help me out here. I think Stephanie, I think Stephanie thought I might be right. So here's the thing. I believe
0: that if you are going to stand outside a restaurant full of mostly Jewish people eating Jewish food, or, deb- you know, we could debate about whether bagels Jewish food. I would say lox, whitefish. It's all still very Jewish to me. If you're going to stand outside and say latkes, who wants latkes? And like, you know, everyone who ordered kind of right. wanted latkes. <laughs> it's like French fries. You're like, should we get the fries? Like you know, it's like, you're going to stand there and say latkes. Everyone's going to say yes. And when, when of course, they came over to give us the second check, because we'd already paid our bill.
1: We'd already paid. We'd already expensed a big meal to tablet. They
0: brought over a second check for these four latkes, which, by the way, delicious, piping hot, amazing. I think that is like really psychologically, you know, very manipulative.
2: So you're saying basically yelling latkes <laughs> in a
1: crowded appetizing shop is like yelling fire in a crowded theater. It's a Jewish equivalent thereof. Exactly. I also am gonna go way out of the limb here. First of all, I'd say, yeah, that was psychologically abusive. Also, I had never been to Barney Greengrass. Now, again, I'm just a hillbilly from the sticks but $14.70 for one latka with a little sour cream and a little applesauce. It was four, it was four latkes. latkes. What, that's still $15. Bumpkin. The prices there were usurious and the latka was utterly mediocre. Usurious. They were usurious prices. <laughs> the
0: cabal prices. of appetizing. It was. <laughs> price keepers.
1: Guys, that was among the worst latkes I've ever had. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Stephanie. But honestly, every Hanukkah party I've ever been to where the, the potatoes had been hand shredded or shredded that day in a machine.
0: We, what if they were free? What if they were free?
1: If it had been a free latke, it would have been worth every penny. It was a mediocre latke, four of them, $15. After we just eat, I just had ordered $20 scrambled eggs. All right, I'm going to step up here. First of all, I'm not going to defend latkes
2: just because categorically, as you well know, I think latkes are the absolute worst Jewish food ever, and no one should eat them. They're like the 19th best way to make potatoes. Which makes me a triple schmuck for asking for them at the... (laughs) Absolute. I happen to think Barney Greenhouses are great, but whatever. I am going to take issue with you, Mark Oppenheimer. Sure. And I'm going to criticize your order because, and this is something our listeners have a right to know, yeah. that when offered bread to accompany your, <laughs> your scrambled eggs and whitefish salad, which bread did you order? Did you order the bagel? Did you order the biali? Did you do the profoundly Jewish thing? No. No, sir. You ordered toast. Toast,
1: sir. For shame. Right, toast. Just like in Springfield, Mass., What's wrong with that? What's more Jewish than rye toast? This is not a friendly, sir. Like rye toast is, and I, I trusted they'd have good rye toast. They had perfectly adequate rye toast. Honestly, guys, like I eat, I take my kids to the Athenian diner every week for an omelet before Sunday school. I get better scrambled eggs and better toast. Maybe the sable is amazing. Maybe I'm missing something. The company was fabulous. The service was nice until they until they conned $15 out of us for latkes. <laughs> but honestly, like, please write in and defend why we spent $100 for a few people to have scrambled eggs and a little whitefish. Because the Nova onion and egg dish is the epitome of perfection because the whitefish salad is second to none. What made it second to none? You guys are like uncomfortable because you think you can't actually disrespect Barney Greengrass on a Jewish podcast.
0: I'm not uncomfortable. I just We're just, not
1: uncomfortable. We're just members of a cult. It, it, what you're saying right now doesn't even like make sense I to us. Like like I like This is like telling a Scientologist that like there aren't really
2: aliens in a volcano.
1: Like we don't even understand what it means. You know, we know about wine tasters, even people who claim to be experts that you put like plonk in front of them and good wine. They actually can't tell the difference. You couldn't tell that whitefish salad from the whitefish salad at a diner. Ten blocks away.
0: Well, I'm I'm just keeping quiet because I have not been eating locks throughout these past eight months, and it's been really challenging. And like, I don't, everyone's like, "Oh, do you miss sushi?" I'm like, "No, I miss freaking locks." And of course, I know a lot of people who are like, "By the second one, you'll eat locks." Like, so yeah. So I have nothing to add here because I I ate scrambled eggs.
2: Mark, challenge accepted. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna procure two scoops of whitefish salad. One will be Barney Greengrass. The other will be produced by you from any dining
1: institution in the great state of Connecticut or anywhere else that you wish, or from a supermarket, wherever you want. I'll go to Katz's at the Woodbridge line. It's not kosher. It's not gourmet. It's like, it's good. It's good diner food. But wait, you actually have a 50% chance. We need three. We need three, two diner food, one Barney Greengrass. Is that fair? we yes, got it, it okay is. we'll make this happen what i want to know from the listeners is actually back to the latke question which is like if the guy comes out as you the question you posed it says like who needs latkes who needs latkes fresh latkes just just yeah. out do you expect the bill to come or is he comping you is he giving you a lanyap it's
0: jewish emotional terrorism
1: it is a little bit you ain't from these parts you're in from around here man it's shuttle highway <laughs> robbery welcome to new york I don't have my New York calluses on anyway, so. Where those of us who've made terrible life choices still have to face reality every day. <laughs> Guys, before we leave Yiddishkite behind entirely, I do want to talk about, so I recently rewatched the incredibly good movie, Crazy Stupid Love. With everybody, with Steve Carell and Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling and Incredibly just, good movie.
0: Such a good movie, so underrated.
1: So underrated.
0: Do we agree on something? Does this just happen?
1: Yes, we, we just we just did. Unbelievable.
0: On one of the most important films of all time.
1: <laughs> I couldn't believe I had never rewatched it because it's like free streaming on Netflix or pre Prime or something. Okay, here's the thing: the Ryan Gosling character, Stephanie, you were saying that at the time you remember there was some question about is he supposed to be Jewish? Well
0: he uses Yiddish and he also is named Jacob. Like his Jacob Palmer is his last name. So not super identifiably Jewish. But to me, it was always like, I think he's supposed to be Jewish. Maybe that was me wanting him to be Jewish. Right. He's very attractive in this movie. It's like uncomfortable attractive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's like ridiculously hot. There's like, like, oh my God.
0: Also, there's the thing about the dad, right? I feel like that they're playing on a Jewish dad stereotype where he was like, my dad was too soft.
1: He was too soft. He was too kind, but he was very wealthy.
0: And he kind of has like a Brooklyn accent, even though they see to
1: live in LA, yes, he he codes as sort of like a tough guy from he's he codes yeah like as, exactly like, like that. maybe he was raised around the diamond biz or something like a street Jew yeah he's kind of like a street Jew street Jew meets money Jew anyway one of the big bits of evidence is he twice uses the word schwanz. The first time is when he's, he's talking to Steve Carell. He meets Steve Carell in a bar and he thinks, oh my God, this guy's such a schlemiel. I got I to gotta help him out.
0: And you know he thinks schlemiel because he's thinking in Yiddish.
1: Exactly. And he, <laughs> he, sees, he sees Steve Carell sipping his drink, his, his alcoholic drink through a straw. And he says, look at you. You got, you got that straw in your mouth like a little schwanz. You're sitting there with the Supercuts haircut. You're getting drunk on watered down vodka cranberries like a 14-year-old girl. Would you take that straw out of your mouth? Please. It looks like you get a schvanz in your mouth.
3: No one's thinking that.
1: Really? Meaning I think the straw, like it's as if you have a little dick in your mouth. Then, you know, 40 minutes later, they're in the locker room after, after a workout because he's getting Carell all buff. And, <laughs> and you, through artful camera work, you could tell that Gosling is completely naked and so buff. And Carell is, is like, would you get your dick out of my face? Then, would you put on some clothes,
4: please? Oh, I'm sorry. Is this bothering you? No, it's not. Cal, my schvanz is in your face for 20 minutes. If it's not bothering you, we got a bigger problem. Okay, it bothers
0: me. I
1: don't care. I had never heard the word schvans S-C-H-V-A-N-C. <laughs> ah,
0: I don't think I had either.
1: Oh, I have. You have? So I go on to, you know, dot, And it means like either, a. it means a dick, like like putz or schmuck. It seems to mean a dick as in don't be a dick, or it can also mean the actual, a phallus. But schvans, I want, it sounds dirtier than putz or schmuck or any of the other, the Hebrew words or... It,
0: so I'm on... um jewishlanguages.org. The definitions are very rude man, lowlife snitch, and then the anatomical one.
2: jewishlanguages.org, brought to you by Stormfront.
0: (laughs) I love this. Example sentences. That guy is a real schwanz. I'm like, that does not tell me what, like, can you use that in a sentence that's a little clearer? But I have to say, I mean, what this means is there must have been a writer on that movie. Like, we have to figure out who is responsible for getting schwanz in this movie. Maybe we get Ryan Gosling on.
2: Hold on. You're telling me that there was a writer on a film who who was a Jew.
0: Well, but Liel, what we're- But who knew like beyond- It's like, deep, but it, he wasn't like, I think it's, it's, yeah. It's a deep cut. What it we're telling you, Liel, is like in American Yiddish- I mean, Literally, So in some in some cases, might be, you know, a deep cut.
1: It, <laughs> Stephanie, you know- mm-hmm. Sorry. You still got it. You claim the pregnancy has slowed you down and you're not feeling great, but my God. Liel, what we're telling you is you grew up with a lot of American Yiddish. We got five words for penis, none of and and, and schwanz ain't a one is what we're telling you. And this movie gave us- Schvance. It feels like an old, old man word that's that has fallen out of use. I am thrilled that you're reclaiming this part of our heritage, as well. You should. You know, it's a That guy at Barney Greengrass, a real schvants. My God, <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna come for me, aren't they? I love this. I hope they do. I hope Gary Greengrass is listening. Gary, I love you. If he is, is he the owner? He's the man. He's like Barney's. Barney's son or nephew he's, or grandson. He's, he's or the Pope.
0: I want to do a Jewish Olymp. I want to do the Maccabi Games. But between the like fourth generation run Jewish shops, like you get Katz's in New York City, you get Katz's, you got Russ and Daughters, maybe the Moscot family can
1: compete. Second Avenue Deli. Zabar's. Sammy's Romanian.
0: Yeah. Like all these places whose like kids, kids, kids are now running it. Have I talked about the Zabar's podcast on the show? No. Willie Zabar has a podcast. I think he's fourth gen very entertaining podcast. And as I put on Instagram, I know from Jewish podcasts.
1: Well, you know, one of Sid's great New York brushes with fame is she went she went to high school with one of the Russ kids with somebody Russ Fetterman. I forget what his first name is. but Oh, Josh? I think it was Josh Russ Fetterman. Anyway, they went to visit together. They hung. They schmoozed. He was not a schvance. Only charges
2: $12 for latkes. <laughs> I was like, what?
1: Those
0: is- are actually pretty good. But, but, but I was like Russ also has that puck like Lodka. I mean it might just be it's it's like a it's like a matzo ball, big or small. Right, like is that what a lotka is? That certain place it is, it is.
2: That is that is what a lot is.
1: Our Jew of the Week is David Fishoff. He's a music and sports agent. For the past 20 years, he's run Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, an interactive musical event that does what you'd think it would do. It lets you jam alongside your rock idols. There's a new documentary film about the camp, Rock Camp the Movie. And David grew up Orthodox. He knows his Jewiness. And David, we're glad to have you. How are you doing today?
4: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I am a super Jew. (laughs) (laughs) You're like a hundred
1: proof Jew is what you are. I am a hundred proof Jew. Yeah. Before we get to rock and roll fantasy camp, tell us a little bit. So you're a Texas Jew? We haven't had many of those on.
4: Well, no, I I started in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. I was born up there and and then I my dad moved to Galveston, Texas, you know, which was a big outlet for many Jews came in through there. Right. He was a Holocaust survivor and he survived Auschwitz and Buchenwald and he needed to be in warm weather. So we, we moved down to Florida and to Galveston. And then in 1960, there was a big hurricane. So he wanted to be back east. So we moved to Brockton, Massachusetts, where he was a cantor. And, you know, being a cantor's son, you travel in Hackensack, New Jersey for 32 years. I was raised. My dad was Orthodox. The synagogue was conservative, and the people were reformed. So uh, we love everybody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're a true trans-denominational man. So how did you get into the rock business?
4: So I started, I wanted to be in my brother's band. My brother had a Jewish rock band called the Ruach Revival. They used to play behind Shlomo Kalbach, and they used to do their own gigs. And I was terrible. You know, I, I played bass. I wasn't good. I was 20 years old. So my dad said, why don't you book the band? And then you can book six bands a night. And as a son of a cantor, I listened to my dad, and I started in the Jewish music, and then I was, went to write for the Jewish press, the newspaper, and I wanted to write about Jews and show business. And I went to interview Ron Bloomberg of the New York Yankees, and who was the first D.H., and I got friendly with him, and they, he introduced me to another wannabe Jew named Elliot Maddox, who was center field for the Yankees, and I started representing him, booking him, and started representing athletes, and that's how I started. I was booking comedians in the Catskills and athletes.
1: That's so interesting. So like, who are some of the comedians you worked with in the Catskills? Oh,
4: you know, Freddie Roman, Van Harris, uh, Larry Best, you name it, you know, David Brenner, Henny Youngman. Yeah, I love that comedy. Jack Carter, Jan Murray. Unfortunately, Maury Amster, none of them are alive anymore.
1: I know, I know. So you were booking sports and you were booking comedy. At some point, were you booking musicians as well?
4: No. So what happened was while well, I was a sports agent, I was representing Phil Sims and Vince Ferragamo, you know, with the Rams and a lot of players. I got a call. Someone asked to go on to represent the association. I said, the association of what? Because uh, I didn't know. Wendy. The... Wendy. Wasn't that there? There we go. Yeah. Everyone knows it's Wendy. That was a Wendy, never my love. So yeah, I, I was sharing office space with Gary Kerfis, who was the manager of, of Talking Heads, the Ramones. I used to see Joey Ramone walk in the office and Blondie and all these rock stars and Shep Gordon, the other manager. He was down the block with Teddy Pendergrass, and Alice Cooper. And oh, we had Meat Loaf was up there. And we all shared this office space together. And I saw all these gold records. I said, I want to be in rock and roll. And I want to do something more creative. Because, you know, as a sports agent, show me the money. Show me the right, money. Show me the money get right. a contract. So that's when I moved. Uh, I, I started moving over to music, not realizing that the association was an oldies band. So <laughs> I thought, uh, what am I going to do with them? So I packaged them. I put together a package in 1984 and 85 called the Happy Together Tour. And I did the Turtles, the Grassroots, the Association, the Spank Our Gang, Gary Puck and Union Gap. I put all these bands together in groups of four, put them on the road.
1: Were you still running that? Would you have been running that in, in the summer of 92? Because I saw a package group with at least a couple of those, but when you said Spanky, they were on it too with at least a couple of them and a sort of rejiggered Mamas and the Papas with, oh, um, the papas. with Mackenzie Phillips. because yeah. Okay, yeah, I did Phillips. that, yes.
4: In 92, I was representing the Mamas and Papas with Mackenzie. I saw them play Glastonbury,
1: Connecticut, a really wonderful outdoor show. Went there with my high school girlfriend and a whole bunch of other friends. We just graduated from high school. We we're having the summer of our lives between high school and college. And we saw that. That was a great, that was a great
4: show. Uh, let me tell you, John Phillips, saw what the talent he was. And, and yeah, I love the Mamas and Papas and they were great. I did all those shows. Then 1986, I did the monkeys and unbeknownst to me, I signed the monkeys, Mickey, Peter, and Davey. And then I signed the, I got the name cause they didn't own the name. Uh-huh. I put it on tour and MTV was on the eighth floor of the building. I was on the seventh floor unbeknownst to me, MTV decided they're going to air the monkeys TV shows that I go on sale and I'm normally selling three, 4,000 tickets to these oldie shows. I sell 25,000 tickets in Chicago 30,000 in Detroit. I'm selling out these amphitheaters like crazy stadiums. Every little girl was waiting online to buy monkey tickets and they come running home and the mother said, where were you all night? I was buying monkey tickets. Well, I want to go. <laughs> they didn't realize that I was a 20 year old man. So that wow. was a big year for me. And I did that again in 87 and then 88, I saw the movie dirty dancing and I decided I was going to take dirty dancing and put that on the road. Cause it reminded me of the Catskills. I put bill medley, I got Eric Carmen, The Contours, the song Do You Love Me, and Mary uh-huh. Clayton. You got Mary Clayton on that. I had Mary Clayton on that too. You now,
1: does she sing any of the songs that are in the movie? Yes. What does she sing?
4: Yes. Because
1: she's she's not really known as a solo act. I mean, she's the greatest backup singer of all time, but you know, Gimme Shelter and other stuff, but that's amazing. Okay. So you're repping all of these rock bands. How did you get the idea for Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp?
4: Okay. So then a year later, I came up with the idea to put Ringo Starr on the road and I put an all-star band and I put an entire band together. And then with Ringo, we got Joe Walsh, we got Levon Helm, we got Jim Keltner and Nils Lofgren. There was a tour in which Levon Helm played with, with Ringo? Yes, the first Ringo star in the All-Star Band tour in 1989. It was amazing. Go on YouTube as an album. It was the most incredible tour. We had Levon, Rick Danko, and Odile Keltner, Truster, Keltner wow. Dr. John. It was most unbelievable. So what happened was, after four days of that tour, now, you have to understand, everyone told me it's never going to happen. You're never going to be able to put all these superstars on the road together. You know, you can do it live, Abe. you can do it on a tour every night. I'm sitting backstage after the fourth show at the Garden State Arts Center, and Nils Lofkin walks by my table and he says, Fish off, I'm out of here. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? A second later, Clarence Clemens, walks by. He says, Fish up, I'm out of here. And you'll see this in the Rock Camp film. All of a sudden, I said, what's going on? He says, no one's getting along in this band. We're going to have to cancel this tour. Now, I had mortgaged my home on the Upper West Side to put down the money to uh-huh. pay for the, the tour. You know, you got to deliver your money. All I could think of was my house going down the Hudson River. <laughs> and I said, what's going on? Joe Walsh and Levon Helm are having a fight. And they got knives. They got blood. So I go run looking for Ringo. I said, where where am I going to find him? I can't find him. So they say, no, you've got to go in the room and straighten it out. I walk in the room and I see Leon yelling at Joe and hitting him with a glass bottle and blood all over him. And Joe Walsh starts going to him with a knife. And I walk in. I say, you guys are a bunch of babies. Are you crazy? And they both turned around. They pushed me. And then all of a sudden, they stuck their tongues out at me. They played a total joke. (sighs) Jim Jim Keltner filmed it. So it's on YouTube. And it's in the film. In our film, that's a big scene. And that's where I got the idea for uh, rock and roll fantasy camp. I realized how much fun these rockers had on the road. So that's when I created the camp.
1: Take us to the beginning of the camp. How do you get a space? How do you book the first people? How do, how do you make it happen?
4: So I, I have this idea to do a rock and roll fantasy camp. I call all my friends, everyone that I know in rock and roll. Michael Love of the Beach Boys, he came. Nils Lafkin came. Clarence lives in Florida. So he came. I do my first one in Florida. It's a total disaster. I had 50 press people and I had five customers. Oh, So we put in some customers, some radio station with us. After the second day, I'm in the lobby of the Elk Hotel, it's right next door, I'm here in Miami now. I got all these media people, I'm walking in the hotel, they call me in the lobby, say, no, fish off. we were gonna destroy you, this thing is great. And they wrote amazing stories. People Magazine, four pages. We got such amazing media, but I decided no more, I'm not gonna do it, I lost so much money. I'm at the Polestar convention, which is our music industry about 4 years later and they're playing a game with Sammy Hager, Tommy Lee, Tommy Shaw and they said who created rock and roll fantasy game David Byrne, David Bowie, David Fisher. Sammy Hager yells out David Fisher. I said, "Wow, these guys remember this thing." So I said, I'm going to do it again. And I did it again in the year 2000 and I called Brett Michaels and George Thorogood. I just called everyone I met backstage and you know, and I got a great response. But the thing that really turned it on was I went to England to Roger Daltrey. And I asked Roger if he would do my camp. He didn't understand what I was talking about. What's a camp? You know, we grew up in the Catskills, We go to camp. I said, Man, if you had a chance to be able to jam with anyone, who would you want to do it? That's what my camp's about. He says, you introduce me to Levon Helm and I'll do your camp. I called Levon. Levon said, I'd love to meet him. And once Roger Daltrey did the camp, it was amazing.
1: I kind of feel the same way about Levon Helm, who obviously I can't meet now. But you know, I, I always thought I'd love to go, go one of those jams on his property in upstate New York that he would have. And I mean, it just—Levon Helm is pretty much the greatest.
4: Okay, you said it. Levon Helm is the greatest, and I wrote a book called Rock Your Business, and I dedicate the book to Levon Helm. I dedicated it to my rabbi. And I did it to Davy Jones because those three people had such an effect on my life. Now, Levon...
1: We should say he was the the longtime drummer and, of and the band. singer of the band, right? Up on
4: Cripple Creek and The Wait. It was unbelievable. Now, he was a musician's musician. People love the band. Now, yeah. they're not being the public, but if you're a musician or you're a music lover, nothing was like them. And we were very yeah. close, Levon and I. I don't know why. Here I am, a New York Jew. And he's from Arkansas.
1: I totally get it though, that soulfulness that he had. First of all, he's one of the great drummers who can sing, right? You got Don Henley, right. you've got Phil Collins, you've got it, like there are not a lot of people out sitting behind the drum kid who can sing. And he really could control the stage from behind the drum kid, but also that voice and that he, there was just, he was the voice of like Roots Rock America. It was just something else. And you've sensed all the soul, all the passion, the warmth. The-
4: was authentic he believed in what he believed and if he he didn't want to do the offer you gave him said i'll think about it let me think about it you know he was just really an amazing for me you know i managed him for a while I learned so much from him and his total understanding of the business. And I took him to baseball games and we we just got a a great relationship.
1: Having spent a lot of time around rockers, you've been around celebrities. I've been around celebrities. At a certain point, most of them, they cease to feel like celebrities. Is there anyone who you still like when you were with them or if you were with them, they'd still kind of wow you like they would take your breath away and you think, I can't believe I'm in the presence of this person?
4: Yes, it was Neil Diamond. Because the jazz singer is my story. <laughs> I saw that movie 30 times. I'd fly down first class to Florida and fly back coach. I was crazy about the jazz singer. And then I met him and I, I walked into Nate Now's in Beverly Hills and he was sitting there at the table with King, with um, Larry King, and they were having breakfast. And I said, "Do you mind, guys, mind if I sit down, I introduce myself. It was the biggest mistake I made in my life. I wish I never would have met him. Why? You know, it's just, I think it's it's hard to meet your idols and that you expect something, something. But but most people, no, I just, you know, I think that's, I learned how to treat them equally. They all put their pants on the same way. And they're amazing people that are talented at what they do, but they, you know, they need advice like everybody else.
1: Any of them who you encounter at rock camp and you thought, this person is an authentic rock and roller, like truly a rebel spirit, not in it for the business. I mean, because a lot of these people, You know, especially I think with the glam rock people, but maybe with all musicians, you know, they're playing a part, but then you get them off stage and, you know, they're on their phone with the NFL app and they're talking to their accountant and they're just, but then you think that some people like Ozzy seems like he really probably is pure rock, like that he's still, maybe I'm wrong about that. But are there any people who you thought like, Jesus, this guy really, it's not an act. He literally is outside the bounds of society. He's in rock and roll world.
4: To me, the most authentic rocker I've ever had to deal with is Roger Daltrey because he is really a, a jeans guy he's the every man's guy he loves his fans and he spends the majority of his time this past two years raising money for his cancer charity team cancer america he's so authentic roger and tough in the way of as being an artist and you know pete townsend they, you read about a lot of stuff but deep inside what a heart he has you know 9-11 happened and first phone call I got was from Roger Dolce how your family is and I think that shows who he is but then you have people who you know it's a business to them and you can tell the difference between the American rock stars and the English rock stars the English rock stars it's a business you know we're going to work my father was a sheet worker I'm Bill Wyman. I'm here for the hours, you know, and they, they not, not not all like that. I mean, but it's a business to them. Mick Jagger went to the school of business. So he looks at the Americans, they want to be the English rock stars. So they're the ones who always went overboard.
1: Right, right. That's so interesting. Before we go, tell me something about what Judaism means to you. I mean, you've been cited quoting rabbinic wisdom. It seems to still live in you. Like what's Judaism to, to David?
4: First of all, what I, I want to tell you that I made this film and in the film, I really talked about my Judaism. I talk about my dad being a, a Holocaust survivor. And that's really to answer your question. My dad survived Auschwitz and Buchenwald, And there's a book called The Yellow Star. It was written by five of his friends surviving those camps and standing in front of Mengele. But my father talked to me about the Holocaust every day. And he was specifically told me how he lit Hanukkah candles. He would trade, uh, he'd get on the floor, take cigarette butts, make cigarettes from the, the tobacco that wasn't used. And he'd give the Nazis cigarettes and say, give me some flour and water. And he was working at a plane factory, Buchwald, made matzahs. So I was raised with such a belief in God. I mean, here my dad went through the Holocaust and he still believed in God. I give him so much credit. And it really kept me stronger. So my Judaism has always been first with me. And I think that it's the way you do business. It's the way you act. And then the music... And the sports has really been a second to my life because uh, if I didn't have the Judaism, I wouldn't be able to be in this business for 45 years because you and I know what this business can be. So I think Judaism, really keeping my Judaism and going to synagogue and keeping kosher, that kept me grounded that I could deal with rock and roll, I could deal with professional sports and be around today and be successful.
1: So what do you listen to when you want to unwind today? What do you What do you put on the, the hi-fi, as my grandpa would say?
4: You're gonna think I'm crazy, but I listen to I love a lot of Jewish music. Mm-hmm. I listen to a guy named Mordecai Medevi, I listen to a guy named Avram Fried. I listen to a lot of Who. I listen to the, the Led Zeppelin. But the Jewish music, and I know everyone say, wow, the guy's around all these rockers, and if you see the movie, you'll see all that. The Jewish music is what keeps me connected. And, you know, it reminds me, okay, you know, I know you love, you're rock and roll, but go back down to the level of what you, you know, where you came from.
1: Amazing. David Fischoff, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Where can people see the movie?
4: Okay, go to rockcampthemovie.com and you'll see all the different platforms, but it's on Amazon, it's on Apple, it's on Fandango, it's on video demand everywhere. And um, I think people are really going to get a kick out of it seeing how we mix Judaism. And rock and roll together like no other before.
1: I loved it, and I can't wait for uh, you know my my comped ticket to rock and roll fantasy camp. Absolutely, all I'm
4: down here. That's why I'm here in Florida. We're gonna start up again. You can start up again. Yeah, we'll start up yeah. again. Can't wait. Thank you so much, David.
0: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Myers in JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing, and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous harosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 20th and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member, and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
2: Mailbox,
1: got a letter in the mail. Got a letter in the mailbox. Mailbox. To the mailbox. Hey, Stephanie, would you read this first letter in your best Sally Zilberstein voice?
0: So last week, I forget who we were talking about, it started with BB. where is Bibi from, where is Neftali Bennett from? Like, we said, give us the random Jewish connections in your town, your high school, your camp, your Hebrew school, your dry cleaner, whatever. And friend of the show, Sally Zilberstein, did not disappoint. Here is what she writes. Hi, guys. I come from a small suburb of Philadelphia called Wallingford, Pennsylvania. I have a non-Jewish lead-in to a Jewish connection. When American Bandstand was broadcasting from Philadelphia, Dick Clark lived in Wallingford, two houses away from me. All of us in that community still brag about him. When he moved his show to California, he sold his house to Dr. Jacobson. I think I was still in middle school when my family went to their house for a barbecue. Their daughter Ingrid brought home her future husband, a mostly unknown coffeehouse singer named Jim Croce.
4: Wow. And they say you don't tug on Superman's cake. You don't... With Jim,
1: I don't do Amazing. That is something else. Our listeners really didn't disappoint. They, they took this one to heart. Here's a pretty special one. I want everyone to listen carefully to this one because this, this might be one of my favorite voicemails of all time.
3: So, name-grapping by community. Judith Love Cohen, you can Google it, was my Hebrew school teacher at Temple Israel in Westchester, California. She was a very badass rocket scientist, but perhaps she is best known for being the mother of Jack Black. I went to his breath. I have been known to say, Jack Black? Yeah, I've seen his dick.
0: Jack Black Schwanz. Like, I'm ready for that movie, that remake of <laughs> uh-huh. Crazy Stupid Love, which is Jack
1: Black's Briss. And then we got this one from an area code somewhere in the Boston area. I don't know who it is, but I love her already.
3: Hi, I'm Orthodox. I just wanted to call in with the famous Jew who went to my high school, Mark Oppenheim. Have a great day.
1: So question, is this somebody who, in fact, did go to my high school and got my last name a little bit wrong because it's Oppenheimer, not Oppenheim? or is it somebody who just went to high school with a Mark Oppenheim? who's very famous in the ophthalmologist circles <laughs> like but whatever it is I wish you would have identified yourself because if we went to high school together in a year near each other I'd, I'd love to know and you know um I'd love to know too Ne de mollus- as the motto of our high school goes ne de do not give in to evil naked naked mollusk. <laughs> I mean, you could put this in the alumni magazine, but they—what do they? They cut. What do they cut from your alumni
0: magazine? The classifieds.
1: They cut the alumni notes from my alumni magazine. So,
0: so you won't ever find this person. Print is dead.
1: However, I'll know you really did go to my high school if you know that our mascot was the pelican. Now, you'll also remember that sometime in the last couple of weeks, we started talking about the next sport that Liel should get really into. Now that he's become a huge fan of ice hockey, which he swore he would never do, and as ever, our listeners did not disappoint. Let's go to the voicemail.
3: Okay, you want a sport? Here's your next sport. I'm not talking tiddlywinks. I'm not talking curling. Two-man beach volleyball. And I use man the way I was taught in high school grammar. That means men and women. So you can have two women
1: beach volleyball. Girls in bikinis, bodies in motion. Five minutes watching two-man beach volleyball, you'll be hooked. Liel, how about it? Beach volleyball?
2: I don't know. Being into a sport where like perfect half-naked human beings play in like gorgeous tropical settings Eh,
0: maybe yeah so you're not going to take up Uh,
2: (laughs) matkot the people who play matkot are there's like an unbelievably like physical anomaly the people who play matkot are usually the people who are always in the absolute worst physical shape you would ever find and the sound that thwak thwak
0: thwak is just amazing (laughs) We got an amazing note for you on this, on this subject, Liel, from Ruth O'Connor, the most Ruth O'Connor email that ever Ruth O'Connored.
2: I have to read this. Shabbat shalom and hello from Ireland. Before, this is rambling in the absolute best, greatest, most delightful way, so bear with us here. Ruth O'Connor is my favorite crazy aunt. Pour yourself a drink and and let's go. Before I get onto the topic of this email, I have to say that I love your podcast so much. This week, Mark asked for suggestions for new sports for Liel to look into. This has been in the back of my mind for ages, and I would like to suggest Gaelic games, namely Gaelic football and hurling. Gaelic football is an amazing sport and hurling or... Kamoji, Kamoji, as the women's version is called, is the fastest game on grass. And if you like hockey, I think this may be the one for you. The goalposts are the same as Gaelic football because we all know what that is. And you have a stick called a Hurley or command and a ball called a Sleotard. This is like something out of a Harry Potter book. Like basically, Basically, she's describing Quidditch. The next important question is who to support. There are 32 counties in Ireland. This is an all-island game. <laughs> Each has a team. New York and London also have teams due to diaspora connections. I can't, can't keep. I can't keep a straight face. In the case, in the case of Gaelic football, and I think you should support County Mayo. My county, again, I'm biased, which hasn't won the All-Ireland Senior (laughs) Men's Championship since 1951, because get this, we're cursed. I'm not joking. Until the last man of that winning team dies, we are supposedly cursed. No team, I think, has lost in as many finals, or at least it feels that way as a supporter. It sounds relatable to some of the other teams you support, so I thought you might appreciate that. At least that's the vibe I got from the Mets. Also, I want to hear you say mayo for Sam on the podcast. The Sam McGuire is the name of the cup won in the All-Ireland. Uh, now the motto on the crest is Lin, Christ be with us But you know Catholicism is Was strong here As for hurling camogie I'll leave that up to you Or another listener to write in a passionate case For their county Probably much more eloquently than me I hope you all have a lovely weekend Is Le Ruth O'Connor Ruth, let me say one thing Very clearly, very slowly From the bottom of my heart Mayo for Sam. I'm I'm a huge County Mayo Gaelic football fan. Literally, as soon as we hang up here, I am going to get myself a County Mayo jersey and wear it with pride. To show no less.
1: Now, you know I'm not going to say anything negative about... The Irish or the Irish language or any of this, because remember in year one of the podcast, you once stepped
0: in it, (laughs) Irish Twitter went after
1: you. When I crossed the Irish language mavens by suggesting that, you know, like Yiddish, it was a difficult reclamation project to bring Irish back to life. Oh, my God. That was like my first of many cancellations. But Ruth O'Connor signing her email is Miss teaching us Irish. Is everything's a teachable moment?
0: I will say I want to see the version of those Purge movies where you have to kill all the people on this 1951 <laughs> championship team. There's one night where you get to kill them, and the curse is over.
2: Stephanie, you are going to very dark places right now. That's sick.
0: I think Ruth Ruth got me there. She went there. Oh
1: my god!
0: We are cursed until the last man <laughs> on that winning team
1: dies. How funny would that be? That's if, crazy. If, Irish hurling became the official, our official fast day is Somgadalia and the official sport of unorthodox is Irish hurling. One final letter, I just got to get it in there. Uh, Steve Alderman writes, it may be me, but it seems that either you are all talking incredibly fast or you are speed running the tape. It has made it almost impossible for me to listen to the podcast. If it is me, then I must apologize and go to the audiologist. Thank you, Steve Alderman. Steve I don't know that we're talking any faster than usual. I mean, yes, we're talking incredibly fast. But if you think that we're talking faster than we used to, then yes, you need to go to the audiologist. I hate to be the bearer of bad news.
0: Okay. I, first of all, we are the podcast that's like running our listeners. Like we are talking too fast and losing listeners. That's like, that's a great (laughs) motto. No one (laughs) wants. Too fast to listen to, unorthodox podcast. Um, I will say I have a theory that audiologist is one of the most Jewish right. words of all time. Because where I grew up, it was pronounced like audiologist. Audiologist.
1: Audiologist.
0: Like you can't not say it like that.
1: Right. Go to see your Harold, your audiologist. It's a
0: really hard word to say.
1: I'd love to go to play Maj with you, but I've got to take Aunt Gladys to the audiologist.
0: I don't think it's the second no. I think it's the au- it's the AU that's really hard for us. Aud- the audiolo- audiologist. Audiologist. Anyway. Right in more, are there more Jewish words that aren't actually Jewish? It's kind of like how I thought minutiae was a Yiddish word. Have I talked about that on the show in the last five years? Minutia had,
1: just sounds Yiddish. Instead of it being Latin with an A at the end, you thought it was like M-E-N-U-S-H-E. Like minutia, Min, yeah. Like minucha or "manasha."
0: I took like a million years of Latin in high school because I I don't know why I made a made a wrong, made a bad life decision. But I I never saw the word until I saw it spelled out and I was like, oh. It's not Yiddish. And I said it out loud and people heard me say it.
1: You know what my mom's one of those is? is she always thought shindig was Yiddish. Word for a party, a shindig. It's the letter shin, then dig. <laughs> and then an archaeological dig for yep. the Dead Sea Scrolls. She was very disappointed when I told her that shindig was not.
0: Well, I what about kismet? Kismet seems like a very non-Jewish word to me.
1: I think it's Turkish. It is, yeah.
0: Because I heard someone say kismet, and I was like, I would never, I'd never heard a Jewish person say kismet. <laughs> they would say like bashert.
1: Kismet is 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 the best brand of kasha out there. A very famous person in the radio world, someone you've all heard on NPR, told me that until about the age of thirty-seven, she thought bedraggled was bedraggled, which kind of makes sense. It's like you've been raggled by spending all that time in bed. So you're bedraggled. You're you're bedraggled.
2: Return guest L. John Wartime is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, a man who has, well, at least my dream job. Other, of course, than being co-host of this year podcast, he's also a senior writer at the magazine as well as contributing correspondent for this show on TV called 60 Minutes Something. He's the author or co-author of 10 books, including most recently the New York Times bestsellers Scorecasting and You Can't Make This Up. He's here to talk about his new book about how one magical summer And one magical Jordan changed sports, culture, and life as we know it, forever. So, such a pleasure to have you on the show. I want to jump right in and start with this incredible moment. It is the summer of 1984. You're standing Outside a stadium in Indiana, it's the Olympic tryouts. And this um, young kid, this kind of promising basketball player, starts up a conversation. Tell us about that.
3: This stadium was the, the gym for Indiana where they were holding the trials for the 1984 Olympic team. All the players came to my hometown because the local coach, Bob Knight, was coaching the Olympic team. So everybody naturally came to him. These were not empowered athletes. And uh, there are a series of college players that people have heard of. One, one of them is a guy who wanted to go back to North Carolina for a senior year, and his coach essentially forced him to uh, go to the NBA. That was Michael Jordan, who I think more than anything else was bored that summer, happy to strike up conversations with young bar mitzvah boys on their bicycles who wanted to watch him play basketball. Who was in front of a gym with an unlocked door, no security guards, no agents, no Nike representatives, and anyone from town that was interested could just walk into this building and, and watch Michael Jordan practice and play basketball. No velvet ropes here.
2: So this is kind of a great scene setting because your book is about the summer of 1984 and how it changed American sports and culture, you know, completely. And, and so take us back to this to this moment in time. You're, as you said, a bar mitzvah boy, always interested in sports, having the good fortune of growing up in, you know, Hoosier land where sports are taken seriously. And yet it seems like there are really no big superstars, right? There are celebrated athletes, but everything feels a lot looser
3: back then. Choose your cliche. This was the summer sports went from, from dial-up to wireless, from, from black and white to color. I mean, even the superstars. Larry Bird is the MVP of the NBA that season. And he has a Converse deal, which basically means Converse pays him a couple of shackles to, to wear their shoes and they put him on a poster. After winning Game 7 of the NBA Finals, pinnacle of, of the NBA to which they have flown coach to uh, all the games on commercial (laughs) flights. Larry Bird, a few days after that, plays in an exhibition game for these Olympic team. You know, they sort of uh, were were grooming these guys for the Olympics, so they had this series. Larry Bird, a few days after winning game seven of the NBA final, the MVP is playing in some exhibition game against Michael Jordan and and these Olympic players. And, And I thought that was a pretty good distillation of how little celebrity exists, at least by today's standards. And Everyone had heard of Larry Bird. I mean, this is an A-list athlete at the time. But this is not someone who went off on a private jet to uh, his own Caribbean island. It's 72 hours after winning the NBA title, he's preparing to play in a slubby exhibition game for the Olympic team. And, and Magic Johnson did it a few days after that. Dr. J a few weeks after that.
1: In some ways, it reminded me, this this will seem random, but I think I think you'll get it. I think our listeners will get it. It's sort of like the first time I went to Israel and I was walking down the street and someone grabbed me and pointed out, you know, said like, that's Netanyahu or maybe it was Olmert or maybe it was, you know, Perez or something. But like, you're walking down the street in Jerusalem and you can see the prime minister. You can see, like, in Washington, you never, ever will lay eyes on these people because they're behind phalanxes of guards and what. There is this way when you live in America that if you've grown up in the lifetime, in the lifespan that you and I and Liel have had, you were there for the end of something. And now it's just ramped up. So we're asymptotically approaching, we just get closer and closer and closer to peak separation from each other, right? That there's so many barriers now between us and the stars or us and where the money is made or, and that we actually witnessed it all. Like we, it's hard for me to separate out how much of it is nostalgia since the moment that you're writing about in this case is when I was 10 and when you were 12 or 13 and we're all most nostalgic for the moment when we hit puberty, (laughs) like that's when actually we turned on to everything, right? And how much of it is that I'm naming something real, which is that we were there for the end of a certain kind of organic community that now. Is just so many, is filtered off from us in so many ways that we don't actually know what's going on in the world.
3: There are a few things going on. So, one of them is that you have all these mechanisms of celebrity now, right? And you have, I mean, it start, started with cable TV, which looms large as I sort of realized this was a uh, a great force in, in sports and culture. And you have social media and you have your own channels. And there are all sorts of ways to have these concentric circles of wealth, right? I mean, private air travel, right? You used to see these guys at the airport. And so there's an element of that. I mean, the the flip side to all this nostalgia, and I tried to balance that. I mean, there was something very nice and pure that I could ride my bike up to a gym and there's Michael Jordan. But the flip side of that is the empowerment of celebrities and, and of athletes in particular was something that struck me doing this book. And these athletes had a lot more power and wealth than they probably activated at the time. And so some of this is a function of nostalgia, and it's it's unfortunate that you—I think you're right. You have these barriers, right? You have these ways that celebrities and politicians and musicians and athletes can cordon themselves off from the public. I mean, there are all these stories of, you know, Bruce Springsteen signing autographs as he went on stage, and everyone knew right. what hotel, where he was staying after the concert. and You'd go uh, sit in the lobby and hope to get a, you know an autograph of Bruce Springsteen. That doesn't happen anymore. He's on his private jet to the next stop. But I think the flip side of all this, that I, I certainly in sports, is that— these athletes were really disempowered. And part of that, you know, M- Michael Jordan had this uh, the amazing uh, contract in 1984 where he had his own signature shoe and he endorsed products beyond sports products. And I mean, in the case we're talking about, the, the fact that the Olympic coach Bob Knight could take these college kids, not pay them a dime and make them come to his hometown for 90 days of training camp <laughs> is something no athlete would abide by today. So, um, you know, some of this is nostalgia. But some of this, I think, you're absolutely right. I mean, these these sort of celebrity stories you just don't have now. I mean, no nobody's running into uh, no one's running into Drake at O'Hare, in in a way that they used <laughs> to with with touring artists. But the flip side of that is maybe it's not altogether a bad thing that people are realizing their value.
2: In other words, we would not you write beautifully in a book that by Labor Day you know Jordan was already driving around Chicago in limousine. So without that, without the superstardom, perhaps we don't get the level of performance that we see with someone like Jordan who definitely took the game to totally new heights as great right as these older guys were as as Magic and Larry Bird were Jordan was a total departure and you're saying in part maybe it's because well all of a sudden we figured out an infrastructure to actually pay these people but also kind of insulate really these people in a way that that allowed them to focus on on the
3: craft that's a really great point because I think sometimes we forget about this that there is an element that this is in service of elevating performance, right? That we say, oh, it's amazing that Tom Brady's still winning Super Bowls, when he should be going to kids' birthday parties. And LeBron James is closer to 40 than he is to 30, and he's still playing at this level. I I think some of this insulation and some of the celebrity, certainly some of this wealth, helps elevate performance. I mean, I have have a bit in the book about Martina Navratilova, who I think really didn't get her due, especially in 1984, because she traveled with an entourage and, and used a supercomputer to track the tendencies of her opponents. And all this was sort of written mockingly almost accusatorily that she was somehow uh, cheating. What what was she doing? She was sort of using the resources. Yeah, yeah, she was I, training, exactly. No,
1: <laughs> I love that part of the book. I mean, like like you, I'm a tennis guy. You know, I remember that. I remember the slurs against her and, and some of it was clearly homophobic, like, isn't there something mannish? And you point that out about her muscles and her veins. A lot of it was just that she was, you know, leaving people in the dust because she was a serious trainer in a way that Chris Everett wasn't, for example, and that Hanna Monlikova wasn't. And she was starting something new. On the other hand, Those were the days when there was so much more room for growth and for awe. I mean, when Jimmy Connors made it to the semis at the US Open and he was, I think he was 30, And people couldn't believe that he was still performing that well at that age.
3: 39, 39.
1: Was he 39?
3: Point point taken. Fine, fine with with your facts and your
1: professional knowledge. Nevertheless, right? It was mind-blowing. And now there's a bunch of people, half a dozen anyway, who perform super well, who can make the semis at that age. I do wonder, now that we've torqued everyone up, now that the training's gotten so good right down to the high school level— Kurt Anderson has this whole theory about how culture has basically like wrung itself out. Like we're not going to figure out too many new ways to like make a hedge fund profitable. We're not going to figure out too many more ways to like lower our mile times. We're actually nearing the end. There's not going to be too many more things to do. Is that just nonsense? Because it seems like with sports, like what room is there left for awe at this point beyond Simone Biles, who's just awesome?
3: I mean, I think there are two conversations, right? One one of them is about performance. And yeah, we can talk about super soldiers and gene doping. I mean, there'll always be a next frontier. I think the, an interesting point that you raise is what about our threshold for awe in terms of surprises? You know, we, we didn't see these athletes all the time. There were, there were games of the week and there was, there was an element of scarcity, right? I mean, right. people weren't following Jimmy Connors and people couldn't go on YouTube and watch what he'd done uh, the day prior. So it, it hit us in a different way. I mean, think about what, what would Simone Biles have to do in Tokyo to generate awe? right? I mean, we, we've all seen the, it's amazing. And she's, she's an incredible athlete. And, and she seems like an absolutely, uh, endearing figure, but we know her, we know her backstory. We know about her grandparents. We've seen all the videos we've seen them analyzed. I think as fans, it's changed the experience just because what's there left for us to see. But in, in terms of performance in sports, there will always be ways to shave time off the mile, right? Some of them legal, some of them abortion <laughs> some of instances gray area, some of them, you know, I mean, th- there will always be ways to. uh Enhance, you know, who, whoever thought somebody would hit more than 61 home runs in a season? I mean, I, th- I think there'll always be a way to enhance performance. I am I, I like what you said, though. I mean, I'm interested in how we process it as fans because there's not a lot of suspense. How, how would our hockey team fare against the Soviets in an Olympic game? And now it's like, well, half these guys play in the NHL and we could do models simulating. And I mean, I just I worry about sort of the, the scarcity issue with sports these days because we kind of know everything and it's, it's fun to watch this unfold in real time. But
1: back in 84, you actually didn't see the basketball players for six months of the year. You sort of, they went off to nowheresville exactly. and you switched your attention to other sports. So that, I mean, that was what was so moving to me about, I remember what it was like when the box scores reappeared in April, when the newspaper had this new thing. And I, you know, I do sort of search my children's experience for what's like that for them. And I'm not, I'm not sure. So I want to switch the discussion ever so slightly on the same axis and and
2: talk about you because you have my absolute, I mean, not that I don't love this job, but you have my absolute dream job. And I suppose the dream job of of many, many, many other fanatics. Do we try to get
1: him to switch? Do we try to get him to host a Jewish podcast and we get it's to like freaky, for- <laughs> freaky Friday. <yet? laughs> but
2: what I want to know is like, you, you've done this for a very long time and, and, and your career sort of coincides perfectly with this growth, not just this change in sport, but this change in sport journalism. And, and we've discussed this a little bit here and there, but you're right. I mean, right now I have the MLB app and the NHL app and I watch, God knows how many games every day. And then I go on websites and I follow everything and I listen into podcasts and there's Twitter feeds, like I am clued in to an unbelievable torrent of information. It wasn't like this when you started out. I want to know what it does to you as a sports journalist. Does it change the way you tell the story? Do you focus on different things now than you did when you were starting out? And if so, what? Walk us through this this growth that, again, as you say, 1984 is very much responsible for.
3: It's a good question. We're all sort of trying to figure it out. And I think you have these two sort of fundamental and, and they're inconsistent. They, I mean, there are two things going on. One is that access gets increasingly difficult, right? I mean, when I, when I was starting out, you'd say, I want to do a story on whoever, pick Dirk Nowitzki. And you call up the Dallas Mavericks and, hey, I'd like to come to town and do a piece on Dirk Nowitzki. Oh, great. When do you get here? I'll, I'll reserve you a table for lunch. The, the access is not like that today. The flip side of that is you have this absolutely insatiable appetite for sports. I mean, I think, I think I'd be really worried if people were like, oh, yeah, I guess the 76ers lost the game seven or something. Yeah, I wasn't really interested. I don't know what happened. That is not the case. So I, I think you have these, these kind of two contradictory things going on where it's, it's it maybe not contradictory. It's, it's never been harder to have access to athletes for sort of the classic profiles. At the same time, you never have more stories, more interest, more intrigue. I mean, people want to know every whoever thought a story about the intrigue in the Dallas Mavericks front office would hijack Twitter and, and become a great talking point for days and days. 20 years ago, when I started out, that, that would not have been the case. So, you know, at, at some level, you are, are happy people are interested. You try to find stories that will clichedly move the needle. You know, you sort of try to find stories that will interest people. Your days of uh, spending a day with an athlete for a profile, those are harder to come by. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting time for sports and I, I think the real, the real concern would be if nobody cared, and that certainly is, is not the case.
1: I recently reread that old Philadelphia Magazine profile of Steve Carlton that basically destroyed him. And I thought, this is why athletes don't give anyone access anymore because whoever that journalist was, I forget his name, hung out with Steve Carlton. You remember for like a few days?
3: Yeah, I think it was Pat Jordan. Well, yeah, you're you're anti-Semites in uh, Southern Colorado. Uh, It's terrible what the media does.
1: Carlton revealed himself to be a conspiracy (laughs) theorist and anti-Semite, basically Marjorie Taylor Greene in Southern Colorado. But um, one of the things that I loved about this book, about Glory Days, is that it recreated for me some of the synesthesia back then that you had between sports and movies and music. And again, I'm sure a lot of this was just that I was 10 years old. And so all of those things were pounding on me for the first time. Like the windows had been open and like all the breeze was blowing in. And I got to like agitate to control the radio station in my parents' car. But I am curious for you, I mean, this is a book that goes from, you know, Michael Jordan and Mike Tyson to Ralph Macchio and Michael Jackson. I am curious for you as a journalist now, how much do you feel you have to pay attention to other aspects of culture? Because I feel like we're at a bit more of a low ebb, you know, the time when like all athletes wanted to play a second sport, when you had the, you know, Jordan trying to be a golfer or people playing, you know, baseball and football, or then they would try to be a rapper or that. I don't, I'm not seeing as many people doing that now. And I'm wondering if the, the cultures themselves are more siloed or if you still feel like you have to kind of pay attention to culture in a 360 degree way.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, athletes used to want to play a second sport. And then they wanted to have other businesses. I'm not just an athlete. And now it's all about equity stakes. Everybody wants to have invested in vitamin water or Uber. Now it's all about uh, taking equity stakes in startups. No, I mean, I think some of it too. And I think some of what this book gets at is that you talk about these silos, we talk about niches and disintermediation. I mean, I don't even know what culture is anymore. I mean, I thinking, you imagine in, in 1984, somebody saying, where's the beef? Or, you know, I pity the fool. Or, you know, wax on, wax off. And people say, right. I don't know, what, what are you talking about? Oh, it's this uh, movie called The Karate Kid. Oh, really? Who's in it? Uh, what's what's? Uh, it's on a streaming service. Oh, really? Is it paid? Or can I borrow your... I mean, what is culture now? And you look at the television ratings for TV shows, you know, 84 Olympics or the, the primetime fair. You look at album sales. You look at uh, the, the fact that you basically had three networks and this creep of cable. I, I think pop culture meant something very differently when... We all listen to the same music. We all knew the same pop songs. We all went to the same movies.
2: We were United States back then.
3: Yeah, for, for better or worse. I mean, the, the flip side again to all this is, boy, it, it's great that there are so many more outlets now and there are so many ways to, to make art. And if I have an interest in Danish crime dramas, there, there's a show for me. But I just have a hard time of, of what, is, what, what is pop culture these days when... Um, we're all in our own little silo that's accelerated by social media. I mean, it's funny, too. Even when you go to the games, you know, they, they play this arena rock. And it used to be, you know, everybody would clap and we will rock you. And we all knew the Gary Glitter and we all knew right. the Todd Rundgren. You know, I mean, people, my, my kids don't know the, the classic. My kids don't know the songs from 20 years ago. And I, it's, it's even the sort of most unifying experiences don't unify anymore.
1: Wait, do you mean at games now? I haven't been to a pro game in a long time in any sport. Do you have games now? people don't, those those songs don't get people going? People just sort of talk no. through them and scroll on their Mar- phones? Mark, I'm, and- I'm
2: literally, I'm literally like six hours away from attending a doubleheader. No, no, it's not the same feeling at all.
1: What's the point then? Like, why are you a Mets fan, Leah? Like, what's- Well,
2: I'm a Mets fan for the same reason people have been Mets fans since the 60s, for the heartbreak and the pain. To suffer. Now, I have one, one last question. If you could, from the pinnacle of your experience and accomplishments and wisdom, Return for one fleeting moment to 1984 and give young you one piece of advice. Hey, pay attention to this. Hey, look at that story. It's going to matter a lot. Something you might not have seen at the time, but now having researched and, and written the story of this, of this transformational summer, what would it be?
3: I'll give you two. One of them is is watch this guy, Michael Jordan. And yes, he's, he's an extraordinary basketball player, but watch the way he manages his career and watch the way that he thumbs his nose at his rookie contract with the Chicago Bulls because even in 1984, at age whatever 20, 21 years old, he, he recognizes that he will make much more money off the court than by playing basketball because he sees the value in association in sports and he understands the ri- rising celebrity trends keep an eye on this Michael Jordan he's not necessarily seen as a, a pioneer other than as a basketball player but uh keep an eye on the way he manages his career and then watch this box that more and more people are affixing to their television that enables them to get more channels because those channels will eventually make you you, you will pay a lot for them and they will in turn dump that money into programming which will elevate sports and inflate athletes' salaries and this cable box will have a transforming effect on sports and it will enable you to watch many more games than just the ones that the three networks offer. God bless America. (laughs) Exactly.
1: John, who's the person in this book whom we haven't heard of, but who's most influential, who changed our lives the most despite not being famous?
3: On this day, a day after the Supreme Court has begun to chip away at the cartel that is the NCAA, there is a chapter about the Supreme Court case that Nobody really thought was much of a big deal, but it did give college football programs the right to negotiate their own TV deals. There was some dictum in the decision, and then Justice White, a former college football player, took great issue with it. But keep an eye on this, this Supreme Court case from the summer of 1984 that sort of got the ball rolling in terms of uh, questioning whether amateurism is a restraint of trade. There's also a wrestling impresario, Vince McMahon. And there's a new commissioner at the NBA, David Stern, who has wacky ideas about taking basketball outside the United States and maybe even exporting it. And who knows, maybe one day some really good players in the NBA could come from outside the US. Crazy. That was a crazy thought, exactly. Crazy.
1: L. John Wertheim, what are you working on next? What's the next book? That's
3: a good question. I may be trying my hand at some screenwriting, but give me a few months on that.
1: He writes YA. He's- A correspondent for 60 Minutes. He writes books. He edits for Sports Illustrated. Now, screenwriter.
3: He loves unorthodox and uh, (laughs) is is, is happy to have been on this podcast.
2: And unorthodox loves you right back.
3: Not so much Semitic speak on this one, but this was fun.
1: That's okay. The book is Glory Days, the summer of 1984, the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. The author is the remarkable and the inimitable L. John Wertheim. The L is indeed for Lewis, right?
3: I was going to give you a uh, Shalom reem, and then you had to go there. But yes, oh, the, uh, the nah, LLU. Now you don't get the nice. Uh. Don't, don't tell anyone.
1: Shalom Alechem to you. <laughs> mazel tov. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I
0: have a mazel tov to friend of the show, Ilana Storch, Mama Ilana. She's my friend, Juliana and Ruben Cohen's mother, but she also is in town to she's helping take care of baby Adele. But most importantly, she dropped off a homemade challah for me on the Friday, the first Friday I lived on the Upper West Side. So I moved to the Upper West Side, the promised land, had bagels with you guys, and then had a challah delivery from this wonderful, amazing Ilana Storch. So
2: you're basically racially profiled. You're like, here you go. You're one of us now. Bagels, challah.
0: Yeah. I'm on like I'm on a sitcom. <laughs> I'm on like Jew- more Jewish <laughs> friends. But Ilana's amazing. She runs shortcuts to Shabbat and she is great. And she's an amazing cook. And Josh and I had dinner at their house. When we were in Phoenix for our live show. They did say, Mark, why are you talking smack about why are you trying to alienate Arizonans?
1: Yeah, I felt I feel bad about that. I really I only want to alienate Barney Greengrass. It turns out that's where all my ire should go.
0: Yeah, you've shifted. You're never eating in
2: this
1: neighborhood again. That's right.
2: Liel? I am going to camp. It's summer. And today, it's Monday, as we record, I will be beginning Gemara Bootcamp. Three nights a week, four months of studying and getting stronger and better with my Aramaic. And I want to wish a hearty mazel tov to Itzhak Radner from Yeshiva University, who is the fearless camp director. He's the Yaron, Yaron. of Gemara Bootcamp. And he's going to take us all through uh, one wet, wild American Jewish summer <laughs> camp of Gemara. <laughs> Good luck, Liel. Color war is like Bet Hillel versus Bet Shammai. It's gonna be amazing.
1: Yeah, are you? Is your group? Is it kokhavim Is it Nivonim? Is it? Mine is the Tanaim, and we uh, play against the Amoraim. Against the Amoraim. Well, good luck to you all. Um, I want to give a Mazel Tov to all of the people who run camps, work at camps, who are managing to open this summer. It has been so touch and go. You worked so hard in the last year, first of all, to raise the money to keep these camps from closing. There were a lot of really draconian predictions about how many Jewish institutions would fail. And I hear I should say not just Jewish institutions, but all those institutions that count on, you know, having a constituency in the summer— were fighting for their lives last summer and the ones that made it back and are welcoming children and adults. And I would include my children in that list. Chazach, chazach, venit chazek. I mean, like, you know, just so much strength, so much koach. So like, good for you. And thank you for doing that hard work and um, have a wonderful, wonderful. As we send our kids off to camp in this coming week, have a wonderful summer. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We often come to you live and we are ramping up the live program again for the coming year. Email producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K at, jcross at tabletmag.com. We're at Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Go find us. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Our associate producer is Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Our birthright bus is staffed by David Kane, Paula Tucker, and Amy Natterson Kroll. We're bidding supervision this week by Rabbi Esther Hugenholtz of a goodest Aachen congregation in Coralville, Iowa. And we come to you again from the scattered locations, our basements, our studios, our Aries, our... Um, our Barney Greengrasses. Our Barney Green our birds' nests, which, in memory of the greatest studio ever, we call Argo Studios. Shalom, friends. The trick is to keep in just enough of my bile to make it funny without getting me like literally sued by Bonnie Greengrass. You fribble Adult palate man, you.
0: And when I got to Barney Greengrass, I considered saying, guys, can we get latkes? And I didn't.
1: They smelled it on you.
0: And then when that, and then a man came by, a man came by and said, ice cold. No, wait, what did he say?
1: <laughs> Fresh pipe and hot latkes. Get
0: your pipe and hot latkes. I want like what other ethnic groups this could work for and what foods it would be. Like, I want to, <laughs> like, I want people to write in being like, in my Italian family, that the thing you could do and get into people's psyche right away is like, say this. So, yeah, please write us. Tell us what your emotional food terrorism (laughs) item is.